The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. You can support the show by clicking on the donate button on the website or in the show notes. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. When you decide to make photography your primary method for earning a living, you learn to wear many hats. There is, of course, the photographer, the marketer, the accountant, the salesperson, the social networker. Besides making the occasional photograph, there is never a shortage of things that you have to do. Lara Jo Reagan is a photographer that has learned to wear all of those hats. Part of that experience came as a result of images that she produced of a rescue dog, Mr. Winkle. What started off as a cute calendar of her pet became an internet sensation. At a time when the word viral meant being laid up in bed for a week, rather than an opportunity for fame. The sudden and unexpected success of her work with Mr. Winkle allowed her to learn a whole new facet of the photography business that has helped her with her subsequent work, including her latest book, Dogs in Cars, a book which captures beautifully and with funny images, canines indulging in one of their favorite pastimes, taking a ride in the family car. The word multifaceted is used a lot with many artists, but I think that in the case of Laura Jo Reagan, not only is that true, but she is the kind of person that demonstrates how to do many of those things well. Well, thank you for making time for me this morning. Oh, I mean, it's afternoon now, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Days are getting longer, thank goodness. More time to shoot pictures. I saw something posted on uh, Nextdoor announcing the, uh, the book signing. And yes. that's how I found out about you. I went, oh my God, she's local. And love, I, I love Nextdoor Altadena. What a great idea. Yeah, it's great. It's great. And then I, I, I started looking more and more into you. And I was like, oh, my God, you, you have quite the career. Uh, I, I wanted to start off because I, I was reading something that was really interesting. Is that uh, you were doing photography, but, it, but that's not what brought you to Los Angeles. You were considering another career when you came to L.A. So tell me, tell me about that. Yes, um, I was, I guess, in my early 20s, and I, uh, I've always loved film. I've always loved filmmaking, film. I, growing up, I followed the filmmakers as much as I followed photographers. Um, my brother was a screenwriter, and I, uh, I guess I would had a dalliance, a brief dalliance with um, uh, screenwriting and with you know looking at directing on the horizon. But I discovered still photography when I was 15 and already had been quite active doing that. And that ended up being my abiding passion. But filmmaking has informed my photography and influenced my photography quite a bit. So how did you get back into photography? How did you get jacked into the point that you were doing that as a living? In my late 20s, I would say, um, I... Uh, I, I don't know what it was. I, you know, it, it corresponded to my father's death, and I, I don't know how that affected it. I, I think that it, it did affect it, uh, and I just decided life is short. What do you love the most? Um, although my brother and I had some things going on, he decided to move, move to Montana um, and pursue um, being a journalist, which was his abiding passion. And I realized that um, so much of the fun being in the film world was 
writing with him. He's really smart mm. and really funny, and he's my best friend. And um, it just, I don't think I had enough talent to, as a screenwriter to do that without him. But uh, photography, on the other hand, that is, was 100% me. I'd been doing it since I was 15. And like I said, I realized it was my abiding passion. So I, at that point, I just went headlong back into it. I started getting uh, my portfolio back together and uh, contacting local newspapers and um, you know, setting up my darkroom again. And um, But I'm, I'm glad that I had that interlude um, you know, studying film and pursuing filmmaking. At the time, my boyfriend was a film editor who uh, was quite gifted and smart and taught me a lot about film and editing. Um, but it did really influence my photography. Um, and an example of that is uh, my latest book, Dogs and Cars. A lot of the, um, I, you know, I not only want the individual pictures to look good, but I want the whole the book as a whole to have a, a filmactic sense, mm -hmm. a, a narrative sense of going on a journey. And within within the book, there are there are filmactic sequences um, other than just one photo, because uh, some of the dogs uh, were were better expressed with three or four photos that suggest a, a little film sequence other than just one, you know, great wow photo. And I, I did make a little film at one point in my life. And one thing on my bucket list is to make one more film. And I'm not interested in making big Hollywood films or any, anything, uh, you know, where you have 40 trucks and all this. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm very much, in, um, I, I'm very much, I would say, passionate about European style filmmakers where you have the smallest crew possible, maybe just three or four people. And you film it, you edit it yourself. You do as much as you can yourself, um, and that's the kind of film that I, I, I don't know. I just like those guerrilla independent films that are so personal, and you know the big budget isn't written all over them. I, I would like to do one more of those in my lifetime. And I, <laughs> your, your work revolves primarily around doing documentary style work. Yes, and but you, you, you like as you said, you'd like to have your own sort of twist to it. And um, I, I wanted to talk about um, a project that you won the World Press Award for, mm -hmm. uh, which was The Uncounted. Yes. Uh, tell us about that, because I thought that was a really fascinating series of uh, yes. images. Yes, I felt like the luckiest photographer in the world to get this assignment, because it was the last big commission that life granted before you know their traditional monthly publication shut down mm. and what it was uh was it was a vehicle to explore well what it was is documenting people in the parts of the united states that uh the census the census takers miss and it was really a vehicle or, or a framework within which to explore disenfranchisement poverty uh new waves of immigrants who aren't on the map yet um, it really exploring America off the official record of America. Mm. And that that's what's always interested me. I mean, even when I was doing behind the scenes and Hollywood shoots for the magazines, I would try to find moments and um, aspects of it that were uh, outside the carefully choreographed publicity pageant. Right. And, and, you know, you apply that to America in general. Um, what, what are the pockets of America? Who are the people that we don't 
that it's not even in our collective consciousness that we think of as being America or being part of America yet. So it took me to, I mean, everything from remote um, Native American islands in Alaska to new, you know, um, Asian immigrants in Minnesota to uh, remote parts of Appalachia, where there's extreme poverty that looks like it's third world poverty that you wouldn't even think exists in America anymore. So it was a very, very um, enriching, rewarding project. The image that won World Press Photo of the Year was a picture of a Mexican family in this this sort of enclave that on the border of Mexico and Texas and Colonias, Texas, where because of the, the local politics, they were allowed to set up these ramshackle homes and um, you know there was movements to, to, to remove them, but it hadn't happened yet. And this uh, family, the Sanchez family, lived in something that looked almost like a cave made of wood. And the mother was, in the picture, was, um, you know, dipping her hands in wet paste and making the shell of a pinata, which looked very ghostly. Uh, And that's uh, how she supported her family, making pinatas. And um, her three children were in the room, and one of them was in a wheelchair, it was uh, very sad, um, but I thought beautiful in a way because here's this mother doing, you know, this this sort of grueling, humiliating work to, to support her kids and make their future better. And, you know, and my, my you know, and I, my father uh, came over from Ireland when he was a kid, and they lived in this house. They had seven kids. There was two bedrooms. They were really poor, and I just uh, had a great deal of sympathy for them because I just you know my I just realized my father's family wasn't that different and that was just a generation Mm. ago um so I've become very interested too in entry-level Americans you know the people what they have to go through to establish themselves in the country and my father's parents were um you know, really struggled. And, you know, and, and I know that his father had a much better situation in Ireland, and he was reduced to, you know, being a bricklayer. And that was really humiliating. And a lot of, there were a lot of men like my grandfather in the same situation, and they drank a lot at the local bars, and, you know, just all to give their kids a, a leg up. And I think that's really beautiful and sad. And it, it just has a great deal of, uh, um, you know, just import to it sociologically, emotionally, psychologically, photographically. Ken, when you look back at uh, your life with your with your family, with your father, observing that about him, do you feel like that gave you special insight that allowed you to capture images that other people might not have been able to, to make? Or, or, or mm-hmm. recognize moments that others would have just sort of glossed over and not, and not you know, realize that it was an important moment or, or, or a telling, telling moment? I think uh, perhaps in that I, um, I, I had a awareness. My father made me work for everything. When I wanted to buy a camera, he, you know, he, he always made me get a job. I worked at a Dairy Queen to buy my first camera. And I had a lot of these jobs where I was subjected to, you know, less fortunate people. I mean, my father, I I don't want to sound disingenuous. My father worked really hard. He went into, you know, he was in a submarine in the Navy to get a college scholarship. And he ended up being a a big Ford executive. So he worked his way up from nothing. And my father Mm -hmm. uh, made me work for everything. I mean, I was (laughs) never given a dime. After college, we were completely cut off. I mean, (laughs) you know, so... um, 
I not only it's my awareness of his background, but my awareness of what a lot of people have to go through to make it that I think gave me a lot of sympathy and empathy for uh, anyone who's in a disenfranchised or less fortunate situation. Yeah. And then on a complete 180 from that is your work where you were photographing Hollywood. Yes. Which is like <laughs> as far as, as you can from from what you've been talking about, Appalachia and, and all that. So uh, tell us about, about that work. Well, this is really funny, but my mother was kind of from the opposite side of the tracks as my dad. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> but she was really, she really loved the arts and she really loved literature. She would read three books a week. I mean, she, you know, but, but she was um, a bit of a socialite. So I also grew up going to these events in Philadelphia that, uh, and my father hated them. So I, I just sort of had this psychological whiplash as a kid. He thought they were shallow, just if everyone goes to see and be seen. And my mother, I think, saw the good side of that crowd and realized you could, you know, if you befriended them, you could raise money for the arts. She was a very innovative and prominent fundraiser for arts and charity in Philadelphia. Mm. So she knew how to kind of befriend them and, um, you know, and roll with them. And as a result, raised a lot of money for the art. So I grew up seeing all sides of things. And uh, that probably really um, was the foundation for my documentarian's mind, because I just think whether you're going into Hollywood to photograph the beautiful people, so to speak, or you're, you know, photographing, um, photographing the poor and downtrodden, I just think it's really good to go in with an open mind. And I'm interested not only in, in how all the strata of society interconnect. So from a sociological perspective, I just grew up with a lot of conflict. Mm. So and I think that really um, just uh, sparked a lot of thinking and a lot of contemplation about people and, and a lot of sympathy for, for both sides. Um, and you know, but with Hollywood, I, I love filmmaking, and like I mentioned before, I wasn't, I am, was not interested in glamorizing movie stars, and because I, I, I did do that for a while, and I just felt like I was, I wasn't really doing serious documentation or or serious photography. I, I was just um, really being part of their PR machine. Yeah, and you know, there's a there's a place for that. I'm not putting it down, and some people are really good at it and really get into it. But I was just more interested in getting at. Um, more poetic and weird truths behind the facade. Yeah. One of your, one of your images that I, I didn't realize it was you who had made it until I was doing the research for, for the interview. And it's an image that I love is of Mira Servino and Martin Landau in an elevator. Yes. That was my and, favorite one. And that is such a wonderful shot because it's obviously the night that uh, Mira Servino won the Oscar. And, you know, it's a night where everyone is sort of hyper stylized. And yet here is, uh, as mundane a moment as you can have, two people in an elevator. And oh, that's the, yeah, that's exactly what I was after. The the, the beauty in the mundane, um, trying to find humor and beauty in the mundane when people aren't posing. Um, and uh, yeah, and I snuck onto the elevator to get that. <laughs> <laughs> it was really kind of like the Pentagon back there behind. I mean, I, I should preface this by saying that that was. I was, um, Premier Magazine commissioned me to, uh, it was for four years to uh, photograph behind the scenes at the Oscars. And I, at the time, I was the only photographer allowed backstage. And they hadn't let anyone, uh, allowed anyone backstage for about 20 some years. So mm. I, I, I realized it was a kind of a privileged 
uh, position. But I was really determined to show moments like the moments in the elevator that, you know, that you would never see, you know, in a spread in People magazine or something like that. Just these weird little, I like contradictions, you know, the glamorous clothes, the Oscar, but they're in this fluorescent lit, you know, anachronistic elevator. (laughs) Slightly grungy. Um. Tell me a little bit about that, because here, here is a world that is heavily controlled. And here you have access, but still, you know, you have to be sort of aware of the line. And there's, yes. there's one line where, you know, people just say you can't cross it, but it's, it's flexible. It's malleable. If yeah. you get to get this out, you can push that. But there's another line where you definitely don't want to cross. So how did you sort of negotiate, negotiate yeah. that? And negotiate is the key uh, word because to, to be, I think if you're in a situation like that, you 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 have you do have to think outside the box, and sometimes that involves a real gray area of whether you're crossing a line or not. But you have to be a little bit of a guerrilla photographer mm-hmm. if you want to get things that are different. Um, and um, I, I think I was able to get that because it didn't even occur to the people kind of trying to handle us that. I mean, it. it I, we. I, I should I, again preface this by uh, painting the situation. Um, it was very, like I said, it was almost like the Pentagon back there. I had to have a union person with me, a security guard with me. And when you, you, when you're walking around with this bubble of people or with this gaggle of people, it's hard to be spontaneous. So, uh, but luckily the, the one of the, 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 the guard guy was, uh, I, I think pretty sympathetic to what I was trying to do. And I became friends with him and I think that he trusted me. And, um, and I, you know, you just see these moments and you grab them and sometimes before they have a chance to say, Hey, you can't do that. (laughs) You know, you've already gotten the picture, but you you should try. And since that was the last night of it. And I I mean, um, I mean, I didn't really have anything to lose. It was toward the end of the evening and I didn't think they were going to kick me out at that point, but it, but it was pretty hard. I mean, I had a, even had a gun pulled on me up in the Uh audience when Madonna was rehearsing. Um, and, um, it's, it, it's because the, you know, there's a lot of communication and layers of communication that the people producing the Oscars have to go through. And sometimes the left hand doesn't talk to the right fast enough and they didn't know I, yeah, I was the photographer from premiere, (laughs) (laughs) but it just kind of cracked me up. And, um, I, 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 I wished that the people producing the show, though, understood more that these celebrities, this is the absolute pinnacle of their life, being a, a, an Academy Award nominee or being invited to the Academy Awards, even as a presenter. And every single one of them really do want to be in what was at the time one of the, one of the leading film magazines. They want to be memorialized in that and documented in mm. that. So the, the the stars and the celebrities just were welcomed me, you know, taking their picture because I, they realized what I was doing and I had known some of them before from former shoots. Uh, but the people running the show, understandably, they get very paranoid of ruffling the feathers of the rich and powerful. And so it was a lot of psychology that you had to navigate and all I wanted to do was take beautiful pictures all I wanted to do was create documentation of you know one of the greatest shows you know the Oscar ceremony and TV history and show it in a, in a not in a negative way but in a really beautiful different way how did that ex- how did that experience inform what you did afterwards as a photographer well I, I, I was really happy to do that, and I was thrilled. I had a show at the Academy, and which got a lot of um, got a lot of attention. But at that point, it just really made me miss uh, 
it really made me miss, because of all the politics involved, it really made me miss uh, doing more serious documentary work with more serious subjects. Um, and it's not that not that the Academy, it's not that the Oscar ceremony isn't serious. It's great fun and it's wonderful. But I just, that really made me want to go back to shooting um, things that would be more timeless. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, things that document um, history and sociological movements, um, political movements. I, I think the Saunders campaign, for instance, is fascinating and uh it's going to go down in history and it represents a real shift in consciousness of our society i'm much more interested in things i realized after that put it put doing the oscars put into greater relief how much i love doing the more you know serious uh, political sociological anthropological stories that have more I think timeless value. Your 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 latest book, Dogs and Cars, is just it's just wonderful. So I was looking at, um, you know, when I was looked looked at the pictures of the book and I saw the video uh, behind the scenes, I thought that was great. And then I was doing the research and I realized this is not your first foray into uh, having dogs as the as the the character of your your work and Mr. Winkle. <laughs> and I had no idea at all to, to connect the two. And when Nobody I see. Would. <laughs> And that's, I think that's part, really fascinating part of your story. Because here we've been talking about some of the some of the work that you've been doing, and then this sort of comes out of nowhere. I bet. T- tell us about how that all started. Well, it's nothing I could have ever planned. That's for sure. Um, right about the time of the World Press photo was going on, I found uh, when I was doing the Uncounted story the same year, um, I found this little dog who was appeared to be dumped at the side of the road when I was coming back from a, a shoot for Newsweek on Welfare Moms in Bakersfield. And it was the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, kind of in one of those industrial areas, and nothing was open. So I took him home, and, you know, he was really in bad shape. And uh, after about a year of tender, loving care and lots of vet visits and a makeover, <laughs> I, I started photographing him in response to how people would react to him when I took him for a walk. I mean, it was just so funny. I mean, I didn't even think I would ever photograph them. I thought, well, he's, I have a, I have a really cute dog now, but people would look at him and say, Oh, you know, he looks like, uh, uh, you know, the FedEx guy goes, um, you know, that, said he looks like a a robotic squirrel and a really funny actor friend of mine said that looks like a cat no a cat wearing a dog suit I since I found him in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night I you know I had this sort of uh theory you know just funny theory that he was an alien that was beamed down to study humanity wearing a cheap dog suit as a disguise (laughs) and you know I mean and, and he also like appeared he had many of the features of other animals like he had the legs of a deer and the years of a koala so I just for fun just took 12 pictures in in my studio uh of him in these in different identities and I called it what is Mr. Winkle and I made I thought I made a little calendar out of it and I knew nothing about the internet at the time it was at the end of 2000 2001 and I barely knew how to send an email but I thought naively I'll sell this online you know not knowing the challenges of that um, this is when naivete serves you mm-hmm. it rarely does but this is one case and it did and but in, in the meantime Mr. Winkle had become a little bit of a local urban legend and I, um, I, 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 I had a friend who worked at the LA Times who said well if you ever do anything with him in public you know um, call me it might be just a good fun picture 
Denver. Um, and um, I, so I called. I was doing a little, my first little event with him in the, at the Los Feliz Street Fair where I was going to attempt to sell my calendars. <laughs> and uh, I started talking to the editor and telling him what I'm telling you now about his background. He goes, this sounds like a really good story. So we actually sent a reporter uh, to come and do a full-fledged story on it. And uh, one of the pictures from the calendar, the cat in the dog suit with his little zipper going up his fur, you know, it, it ended up being full page. And then the, the local news saw that and came and did a story. Then CNN saw the local news and then Rosie O'Donnell saw CNN. So, and, and then I, I, I started, it went totally wacko viral and it was actually he was the first viral big viral celebrity from a private url so mr winkle's making like internet history time magazines on you know on uh, section named him the internet celebrity of the year so it just became this phenomena that took over my life and um it was um it really almost blindsided me because i wasn't prepared for it and i was trying to preserve my documentary career and it was um but it it as a result of it i ended up being contracted i had a three book deal with random house a, a deal for calendars with another publisher a deal with mattel so it really took over my life for about four or five years and um he's still his calendar is still popular I still do that. I've learned a lot about publishing. After I decided to just publish the calendar myself after a certain point because I had such a large fan base I could access directly. So it, it's this experience that took me into all these other realms I not would have otherwise visited. Of course, in the process, I fell totally in love with the canine species because when you're looking at even if it's just a single dog through a camera and looking at them so intimately you start developing this spiritual connection um well beyond just you know what one experience is having for a pet or in addition to one so i just became fascinated with dogs because i got to know them so intimately through photographing them which led me to uh, you know, my, my latest book, Dogs and Cars, which is photographing dogs blissing out on car rides. So I've become very interested in, in thinking about what can dog owners relate to in their everyday lives with dogs and how can I explore that more deeply and elevate it into art? You know, it, I, I call it a sideline, although admittedly I spend more time on it now than documentary work. I have several documentary projects going on, non-dog documentary projects, but they take a lot longer because, you know, so I, and I'm lucky because of what happened to the magazine world that sort of took a death spiral, you know, during the recession and with the internet. So magazine assignments are just so fewer than they used to be. So I feel fortunate that I have this other aspect, you know, this other, this dog sideline um, um, I think it, the timing of it all was very good yeah T tell me how how it came to be that you you focused on that particular aspect of a dog's life experience because there, there are a lot of books out there about dogs there are a lot of internets dedicated to dogs and then when I looked at it it was just like it seemed like such an obvious idea but if it was so obvious you know that People would have done it. Well, before. I haven't even done it before. Yeah, yeah. I know. I get. Yeah, I was kind of astounded that no one had done it before. Yeah. Just absolutely astounded. Um, and if you go like and look at stock pictures of dogs and cars, the first thing I do when I think of an idea, I go and I look at stock pictures of the top agency, and I see what's out there and how can I elevate it or explore it beyond what's out there. 
you know, and there, there are pictures of dogs sticking out their, their heads out windows, but they were, a lot of them were quite, um, I, I don't know, just sort of obvious, you know, just not really mundane, obvious, not really, you know, um, and, 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 and so I, I, it was that combined with being stuck in LA traffic and being in a really bad mood and seeing a dog, you know, you know, come, come up next to me in another car, sticking his head out the window. And I just immediately cracked up and it, he melted my bad mood. So. <laughs> and then I know my dogs, one of my, as a family with my husband and daughter and our two, you know, dogs, we, we just, it's such a um, exhilarating experience just hopping in the car and going somewhere. There's so much excitement and there's such a feeling of family closeness and it's really, it represents some of our happiest moments as a family. So it was all those things coalescing into dogs and cars. Yes. Yeah. And so in order to, uh, you know, try to elevate it into what I'd seen out there, I, I, I'm a real stickler for good lighting. And so I built a contraption that I, that I adhered to the car roof so I could, uh, you know, and, and the lights came off it so I could create uh, dimensional lighting uh, in, in, in and outside the car. Uh, rather than just like a frontal flash. And um, I went out at certain times of the day. And, you know, so I wanted to make the lighting really fantastic. And I, I really wanted to try to capture the visceral detail of a dog's joy um, just absolutely as intensely as I could, you know, combined with choices of lenses and lighting and things like that. So, um, yeah. And then that went viral too when I, uh, I, I made it, you know, a calendar and then that went viral and then that led to, uh, a, a little bit of a bidding battle for the book rights. Well, contraption is is <laughs> is is a is very simple way of describing what you did because it really is amazing because you have this rig that goes on the roof of the car that allows you to use three or four. Yeah, lights? lights that hang off and they, they extend beyond the car and shoot back at the dog. So if the dog's inside, you can get some highlight light coming in and if he's outside, you have like a backlight. And then I had a, a, a light, you know, on, on my camera too, as sort of a fill or a, a second light. So it would look more dimensionalized. And then you had a harness on top of all that. So you could I hung hang out on a harness, yeah. On the outside of the car. And the reason I used contraption was it was very makeshift. The harness was from my husband's old uh, rock climbing gear that he concocted for me. And, you know, the rig on the car, it had like, like old carpet scraps over it. It was very Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> Like I said, gorilla. You have to use gorilla tactics. (laughs) (laughs) It was it was amazing. I mean, I can only imagine people seeing you had no idea what you were doing. All of a sudden, what is this woman? Yeah, you know, when when I was in the process of doing it, particularly when I was cruising down Sunset Boulevard, doing this one dog driving by that iconic strip joint, you know, just watching the cars next to me, the the people laughing driving by me. I I wish I had gotten some video footage of that. I w- did you have any close calls there? Because I was looking at the video and I was just like, oh, my God. It was just, it seems so perilous, even though yeah, I'm sure you had taken a lot of safeguards. But still, yes. you're, you're, you're hanging out pretty far to, to get the shots. And sometimes as photographers, we get completely oblivious. Absorbed, yeah. Everything. Yeah. Well, I... Um I was really, really careful about that. I, um, I I would scope out the routes in advance, a lot of them, and I wouldn't, wouldn't, you know, I would be really careful to do it at times when there wasn't a lot of traffic or there wasn't mailboxes that could, you know, decapitate me. <laughs> um, I, I'm, you know, it, it seems really daring, but I'm a very careful and meticulous person, so um, it, it it was okay. And then in the rig, we made sure that that couldn't 
you know, snap and undo no matter what. So was the fact that you were capturing dogs in, in an activity that they just love easier made it, did it make it easier for you to photograph them as opposed to having a dog against a backdrop or. Yes. I, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the pictures, you know, you have to say they have, they, they have to be a little bit set up because you have to plan the shoots and you have to set up the gear but once we were going, the dogs don't know they're being photographed. They're just on this blissful car ride. Mm-hmm. So whenever they're doing what comes naturally to them, um, that to me is what I love to do most in photography. You know, just capturing the moment the, the, with a lot of emotion in it, for, for sure. When, when you get them in a studio, it's a whole different ballgame. You have to use a lot of inorganic methods to, you know, to make them look this way or that or smile or manipulate them. And, you know, that I could write a whole book on that in and of itself. But, yes, my favorite um, my favorite shoots to do with any with humans or dogs are just capturing naturally occurring action. Um, I'm, my next project, I'm exploring dog play, trying to, you know, and uh, uh, it's similar to dogs and cars. But, uh, you, you know, obviously you can't orchestrate dog play. You just have to figure out a way to capture it that um, transcends what's been done before and that that's really exhilarating because you can't you don't even know what you have until you get home and look at your <laughs> look yeah. at your take because it happens so fast and and that's part of the fun of it you know it's you know when there's an element of I'm not sure what I'm going to get I'm just going to put myself in a situation that increases the possibility I'll get something uh, you know that th- that's just great fun you used uh, uh, Craigslist to uh for some of the uh, for some of the dogs that yes. you end up photographing, and Craigslist can be hit or miss for practically anything. I agree. I've had so, some great experiences and some nightmare experiences. So, yeah, in terms of being able to choose a dog that not just look good, but that might work for you in terms of this, mm-hmm. tell us about how you know how you how you came to choose who you did, and, and what was the sort of criteria that you determined whether or not a dog might work for you for this project. Uh, well, before I resorted to Craigslist, I obviously exploited my the, <laughs> my family and friends that had dogs. Uh, and the criteria was your dog has to just love car rides. Most dogs do, but I would say 10, 15% of them don't, but most dogs do. And then after I exhausted those resources, I, uh, I you know, posted on Craigslist and just said, you know, your dog must love um you know, riding in a car. And in order to avoid using the same car for every shoot, which would have been visually very monotonous, I, um, I uh, just said, you know, must have a car. So I would get a big variety of cars. In fact, in the back of dogs and cars, there's a little index that says make, model, and year. And oh, okay. uh, both the, the dogs and the cars, like how old they are and what breed they are, what kind of car it is, if anyone is curious. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and I did pay people a small fee on Craigslist. I mean, there's, because the budgets are so low now and, you know, just everyone's struggling and publishing and there's, it's really hard, but I do believe when you're taking up someone's time for a couple hours in a day, you know, just pay them a little something. Um, and sometimes budgets allow for it and, and, um, sometimes they don't. Um, and, uh, um, let me see. And so I got a, a great deal of response. It was fun. And most people, you know, were delightful. And most people just wanted their dog in a book. They didn't care about the money. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I, I do try to, you know, just have some kind of courtesy fee just for their time. And I, 
I think that's important. If if it's in the budget, <clears throat> it was for this, but there often is no budget. If you're doing something, um, a topic uh, in, in a book, a fine art book, where you know it's never going to make any money. So that's always something that you have to think about. If, so you have this a great experience with Mr. Winkle that provided you uh, insight into publishing, into sort of the business, mm-hmm. using the internet, using social networking. So how did all of that experience inform how you approach this project so that it wasn't it become too expensive for you or that it didn't mm-hmm. consume more time than it really needed mm-hmm. to? Yeah, good question. Um, I think... Uh, you know, my experience in, in publishing is sort of a blessing and a curse, and it's sort of made me a little all too aware of what's going on in publishing. And I think that a lot of uh, photographers who want to do books, you know, don't understand how little money there is and, and that most photography books never make money. And even popular dog photography books don't make all that much money. I mean, it's 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 a real... It's rare that you have a real juggernaut, like underwater dogs, Seth Castile's mm-hmm. underwater dogs. Yeah that sells over 100,000 copies. So um, advances are limited, um, and um, you you really have to uh, temper your expectations about how much something is going to sell. Um, you, you don't immediately get flash-danced into fame and fortune and can write your own ticket on your next project. It's nothing like that. <laughs> and I, I think the curse of the book industry are returns, where it's an anachronistic policy left over from the Great Depression, where to try to stimulate sales, book publishers would, uh, you know, tell book buyers, look, you know, you can return anything that doesn't sell. So as a result, uh, book stores often order more than they think they can sell. But, you know, but even if they think something's going to sell a lot, sometimes it doesn't. And then the returns go right back to the publisher. And uh, the bookstore doesn't have to pay the publisher for that. And, 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 um, and you know, and obviously, the, then the author doesn't get the royalty. So it's really a tough business. And like I said, I'm a small publisher. I've uh, published things that have been in stores for the last 10 years. Um, I actually don't put my name on them. I put my company's name on them because mm. I don't want my name coming up in those more commercial ventures because I, I, would, I would rather be associated with, uh, as, a, you know, as a photographer, a documentary photographer, a, do, a photographic artist than as a publisher. Uh, but um, I, uh, I, I do have a little publishing company. It is expanding. Um, I have, um, I just um, got interest of a, very good distributor to distribute my what my publishing company produces and my dream is to have uh you know an imprint uh that does uh, animal cat dog animal books more for the mass market and an imprint that does fine art books that i'm developing with my husband who's an art writer yeah Uh, and and you have yet another foot in the fine art world Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but see, yeah, I, I have gallery shows, and um, I'm, I'm very interested in taking documentary into, um, I think there's many, many ways that you can present documentary images other than the pages of a magazine or a slideshow online. I mean, you can, I mean, there are people who have started to project them onto buildings. There are uh, people working in multimedia that project video and pictures onto sculptures or that take photographs and uh, and sculpt them into sculptural forms. Um, I mean, there's a lot of cross-hybrid, uh, you know, there's just a lot of cross-fertilization now. 
in photography and in art and where all the medias are starting to be mixed, which I guess is the true definition of postmodern mm-hmm. because, um, you know, you know, there, there's just in a lot of practices in art, uh, you know, a lot of the traditional things have been explored to death. I think there's always room for the classic things to keep going. Like with documentary photography, obviously it's history and time always has to be documented. So that's kind of a classic practice that's never going to go out of style. Um, but, uh, it's, but a lot of what's going on now in the art world are, are, you know, just the, the cross pollinization of different mediums, which I find absolutely fascinating. So, what I'm trying to do with documentary is trying to bring it into more, I guess, um, abstracted and sometimes cinematic realms um, and, and try to present it in, in new provocative ways. Um, Can you give us an example of one yes, body of work? Yes. Uh, what the, one of my uh, more recent projects was called Drive Through. And uh, this happened during the period after I had my my baby in 2004 and I found myself just stuck at home a lot and you know it was a real challenge to get in and out of the car with her in the back and you know in her thing and so I found myself going through drive-throughs a a little more than I ever would in in, (laughs) without a baby and um so I started photographing at night um through the through the drive-through portals the workers so they were silhouetted and um uh you know in, in drive-through restaurants and mostly in the san gabriel valley and i, I hit all the major jack-in-the-box mcdonald's burger king i then rather than just present them you know as eight by tens or 16 by 20 i decided to make each portal the size of the actual portal in real life and then I strung them together. Um, when I had I had a show at Copacan and at the Irvine Art Center, and they were strung together and they wrapped around the room. And they were about let me see about eight six to eight photos eight portals. So when you experienced it was really a, an installation. Um, so when you experienced it, you felt like you were you were kind of uh, surrounded by an endless nocturnal drive through that was both sort of menacing and sad, a little bit comical. And it was my way of um, amplifying the corporatization of the world, you know, by surrounding you with gigantic portal images that you otherwise in real life would just experience. You know, you order your food, you go through, you see the person. So I'm really interested in trying to present documentary photography in new provocative ways like that, either with scale, with trying to have a, you know, a more enveloping experience through installation. I mean, there's all sorts of possibilities. Yeah. And that was very influenced by my husband, who's an art writer and an abstract expressionist and uh, installation. He's a sculptor. So I, you know, one of our favorite thing to do is to go to gallery openings and... Um, and, it, and all that has, and, and I grew up with art, so all that has influenced me really tremendously. Like, what, what can I do with documentary photography that isn't being done? Yeah. And I think it's really important to, to, to always try to break new ground. And the difference, you know, the art world, that's a real criteria in it. You know, one of the things, it's really important to break new ground when you're trying to do something in the art world. Where documentary photography you know, you can only stylize your stuff so much before it's it, it's so it's it's become it's mutated from reality too much. 
um, I'm really interested in um, the relationship between those things and, and, and the interface between, you know, just, just how art, painting, video, photography, how all that can be intermingled. Because there's endless possibilities. It's fascinating oh, to yeah. me. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend one photographer that our listeners can explore on their own. And it can be anyone, oh. someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? I, I just am such a fan of so many photographers, but the one that stands out the most right now, I would say, would be Roger Ballin. I guess relates to a lot of what I've been talking about, um, the confluence of different media, photography, drawing, um, sculpture. Um, he, I, it, his work is really undescribable, which is good, because you really have to see it to understand it. He takes pictures in black and white, but he... Uh, incorporates graffiti and drawings on the walls and animals. And they look, um, I mean, they're kind of like a gothic Paul Clay in a way. Mm. I mean, <laughs> they're really, really fascinating and compelling. And I think 100 years from now, he's going to be, you know, one of the few whose work will really stand up over time. It, it relates, like I said, to what I was talking about, that digital has made taking pictures. I mean, you still take pictures with your mind, not a camera. So just having a digital, you know, the state of the art digital camera is not going to make you take better pictures. However, digital has made it easier for people to get into photography, you get that instant feedback. And it has kind of almost devalued a certain type of, of uh, certain um, practices in photography, because there's the perception that it's easier now, like I said, it's not, mm -hmm. <laughs> but there's that perception. So um, since it's much more ubiquitous, the digital image, um, you know, with cell phones and everything and whatnot, I think what Roger, Roger Ballin is doing is a good response to that, where uh, if you're in the fine art world, you know, you have to figure out ways to, to take documentary photography and into different realms, uh, surreal realms like he's doing, realms that combine different mediums. And I think that's kind of where, where it's at right now in, in the fine art world with photography. Cool. And where can people go to find out more about you and, and your work? LaraJoReagan.com. Uh, Lara is L-A-R-A. And um, then there's a Dogs and Cars website. There's a very anachronistic Mr. Winkle website, which I haven't changed since 2001, because <laughs> <laughs> I like the fact that it was one of the first, um, you know, websites that went viral. And I kind of like to keep it, um, you know, like, like to keep the, the, the uh, old, uh, the, the anachronistic feeling of it. It's terribly... Um, I, I get e notices all the time of, of people that want to update my website, <laughs> and I resist it. <laughs> it's kind of this Lovecraftian presentation of something that came from me from with from complete naive sincerity. <laughs> so <laughs> keep that in mind when you're looking at it. Laura, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking. With you. Oh, you too. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Please remember that you do make a big difference in our show. Take the time today to write a five-star review in the iTunes store. It helps increase our ranking and creates greater awareness of the show. Thanks to Jan the Photoman and Ron USA for their five-star reviews of the show. You could also support the show by donating any amount through our PayPal account. 
Your donations over the years have helped us to improve the quality of the show and played an important role in us being able to create the Candid Frame phone app and make it available for free. Thanks to Stephen Wolf, Michael Hoff, Jonathan Norris, Chris Lockhart, Angela Clark-Smith, Darlene Dunlow, Raymond C., Louis C., G. Thomas, Tony Whiteside, Cassandra Clark, Larry Morata, and Andy McPhoto for their donations to the show. Your support is absolutely invaluable. Thank you. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candor Frame app available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandorframe.com. The Candor Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.